somebody who is, you know, and maybe it was a name, who is Bob or who is so-and-so? You ever, you ever asked somebody that question before? And usually what that person shares with you is their perspective of who that person is. What they have come to believe maybe about that person to be true, or maybe they would even share um, some experience they've had with them. So, for example, if I was to ask the room today, who is Abraham Lincoln? What would your answer be? This is not a, this is not a trick question. Who is Abraham Lincoln? He was a pre- yeah, he was president. Of, all of us would probably tend to answer the fact that he was president of the United States. Now, some of you might know more about Abraham Lincoln, and you would share more about him. You, you would share something you had heard or a story, or you would share from your perspective things that you have valued about him. Others are like, I don't know, I know he was president, and he wore a top hat, and he had a beard, and I think he's on the penny. Um, you know, that, that might be kind of the extent to what you know. When we ask, who is somebody? You know, a who is is also a question that will vary greatly depending upon your relationship to that person. So, for example, if, if you were to ask my wife, Tricia, who is Kelly? Hopefully, she would say, uh, he's my husband. Or if you were to ask my son, Jameson, well, who is Kelly? He would say, he's my dad. Or if you were to ask Evie, my granddaughter, who, who is Kelly? She would say, he's my papa. Or if you were to ask church members, hey, who's this Kelly? We, we hear about him. You'd say, well, he's my pastor. Or if you asked a, a police officer here in the city, hey, who's Kelly? They'd say, well, he's our chaplain. If you were to ask a friend of mine who's Kelly, they would hopefully say he's my friend. Now, have I changed in any of those scenarios? No, I am still Kelly. But people know me from a different perspective. Because that's what happens when relationship takes place. You begin to know somebody based on your perspective. I haven't changed. What somebody says or believes or thinks about me and those varying perspectives doesn't change me. I am the me God has made me to be. But I am different from everybody's varied perspectives. Now, let's apply this kind of reasoning then to Jesus. Christ has revealed himself through Scripture. We see him in the New Testament, in the Gospels. We see the writers talk about him in the letters. We see him prophesied about in the Old Testament. The Bible has been pretty clear to reveal to us who Jesus is. Now get this. What I or you choose to believe about Jesus does not change who he is. Does that make sense? What you or anybody else believes about Jesus does not change who he is. In fact, because he is God, because he's the son of God, one of his attributes is he is unchanging. That means the Jesus that Scripture reveals, both in foretelling him in the Old Testament and in what takes place in the Gospels and the letters following, reveals to us who Jesus is. What you choose to believe or not believe doesn't change him because he is unchanging. What others say about Jesus doesn't change who he is. So through the gospel of Mark, Jesus has revealed himself specifically as the Son of God. The very opening of Mark, chapter 1, we see it, where it talks about Jesus, the Son of God. And then in today's passage, we see Jesus asking a question. And he says, who do people say I am? We're going to get to that in a minute, but today, how would you answer that question? Who is Jesus to you? Some of you are like, well, I I don't know how I would answer that question. I'm not real sure on that yet. 
Well, hopefully by the end of today's message, maybe you'll have a way that you feel like you could answer that question. But I want us to go to Mark chapter 8, because that's where we are today, Mark 8, 22. And to follow this in context, we, we know that just previously, um, Jesus had fed a multitude of people, miraculously once again. There was 4,000 people he fed with fish and loaves, and following that miracle of feeding the multitudes, he spends some time with his disciples, and he teaches them, and he kind of warns them about the yeast of the Pharisees, and if you don't know what that is, just listen to last week's message, they're all available online for you to listen to. But then in that same conversation, he's recognizing the disciples aren't quite getting Jesus. They have been with him now for quite some time, but they're not quite getting him. And so Jesus, at that point, instructs them, you have eyes, but don't see. You have ears, but don't hear. He recognizes there's a, there's a spiritual blindness his disciples are dealing with. And then we go to today's passage. This is just picking up in that same context from the Gospel of Mark. Let's look at it, Mark 8, 22. It says, they came to Bethsaida. Oh, and by the way, if you're using um, the Bible app, all this stuff is available to you there. You can also go online and get our notes uh, through our website if you want to follow along. But they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand, led him outside the village, and when he had spit on the man's eyes, there he is again spitting like we looked at last week, proof that Jesus was a country boy. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He, the blind man, looked up and said, "I, I see people. They look like trees walking around. So once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus went home saying, Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Now, here's what's interesting. That Mark places a story about a healing of a blind man on the heels of saying to his disciples, you have eyes but don't see and ears that don't. This is not coincidence. This is instructional. There were times in Jesus' ministry when he would heal somebody, yes, for the benefit of the person who was being healed. But there were also times that Jesus would heal or do do a specific ministry to show something about who he is or to reveal a spiritual truth. This particular healing happened to be one of those times that Jesus was showing something through the healing that he was hoping his disciples would get. So what is it? Well, let's look at it. Here we have a man who was blind, and he's brought to Jesus, and Jesus <laughs> spits right in the guy's eyes. It's like, what? I came to be healed, not spit at. Lays his hands on him, and it has the man say, what's going on? And he says, well, I can see people, but they look like trees. And so Jesus then touches him again, and then his eyes are fully open. Now, when you look at something like that in Scripture, you have to begin to ask some questions about it. And you know what? It is okay to go to Scripture and ask questions, because most of the time I've discovered that if I begin to ask some questions like, why? Why is this man being healed in two stages rather than just one? Because certainly Jesus has the power. He's proven it already in the Gospels. He has the power to speak a word, and it is done. There are times that there is somebody who is sick, and not even in close proximity to Jesus, but somebody comes to him and says, hey, my servant is sick. If you just say the word, he'll be healed. And Jesus says the word, and miles away, the person's healed. 
So why, when it comes to this blind man, would Jesus do this in kind of a progression of stages? Why not just say, eyes be opened and he can all of a sudden see? He certainly had the power to do that. Why the two phases? And this is where we look at this and go, Jesus is teaching something through this healing. Yes, he's ministering to this man and his need in a very real way, but he's also teaching something to his disciples. See, because he knew that his disciples were like phase one of that man's healing when he said he opened his eyes and he could see people, but they looked like trees. Jesus knew that his disciples have spent two and a half, maybe three years with him. They've had front row seats and everything that Jesus has done, and yet they still wrestle with who he is. Remember that time when he, when he calmed the storm on the sea? They're like, who is this guy? I mean, they should kind of know who he is, but they're having a difficult time understanding who Jesus is. And so they're like phase one of that man's healing. They can see Jesus. They know he's something spectacular. They know he's somebody special. They, they, they should know that he's the son of God, right? I mean, they've been with him. He's told them as much. But they have this spiritual blindness. And that's what Jesus is highlighting. And that by some of you in the room today, that's, that's your experience right now. You've heard about Jesus. You might have grown up going to church. You went to vacation Bible school or Sunday school on a regular basis. And you know all about Jesus, but you really don't see him clearly. You kind of know about him, his birth, his death, resurrection. But when it comes to Jesus, you're not really clear on who he is. And if somebody was to ask you the question, well, who was Jesus to you? You might be going, I don't know. He's a good guy. He's a good teacher. He was a Lord, I think. You know, but you maybe don't feel like you could answer that question. That was phase one of this man's blindness. And he was trying to show the disciples that they were enlightened to a degree, but they still were not seeing him for who he was. You know, there are some people you know that are totally blind to Jesus. If you were to talk to them about Jesus, they'd go, well, I think I've heard the name once or twice. There are others who have some understanding about who Jesus is, but it's blurry, it's fuzzy, it's not very clear. And maybe that's you today. But whatever the condition of your vision about Jesus today, understand this truth. It takes a spiritual awakening. It takes a, a spiritual understanding. Like we sang, an opening of the eyes of my heart, which, by the way, is only a work of the Holy Spirit within us to begin to discover who Jesus really is. In fact, here's a, a truth that kind of wraps up this first part of Mark, and it's this. The Holy Spirit helps us to see and know Jesus for who he really is. This is a truth that we begin to see fleshed out further in the, in the letters written by Paul specifically, but this is a work of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus talks about it. In fact, in John, when he is about to be uh, arrested, crucified, you know, all that, he has some time in the upper room with his disciples. And in that context, he shares this from John 15. He talks about the Holy Spirit. And he says this in John 15, 26. When the advocate, that's another name for the Holy Spirit. Advocate means one who was called alongside of you to advocate for you, all right? So when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth. So now we know this is the Holy Spirit who goes out from the Father. He will testify about me. In other words, the job of the Holy Spirit within us is to give witness or testify of who Jesus is. 
Now, fast forward in the story. So Jesus goes to the cross. He dies, and he rises again three days later. The disciples begin to piece together, whoa, this is not just you know, a powerful guy, a prophet. or a power. This is the Son of God. And then on Pentecost, Acts 2, they receive the Holy Spirit in a dynamically powerful way, and then they begin to preach. In fact, Peter specifically begins to preach about who this is, and he gives testimony of who Jesus is. Why? Because all of a sudden, he has 20-20 vision of who Jesus is, and he will lay down his life and testimony of who Jesus is. That's the kind of clarity that Peter gets by the Holy Spirit. Paul kind of talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. He says, Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed, and no one can say, and here's the key, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, this isn't just lip service. This is really understanding and embodying Jesus is Lord. Only that can happen by the Spirit of God who has awakened that in your heart. Paul also says in Ephesians 1.17, as he's praying for the church at Ephesus, he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. So there's the spirit to do something, give us wisdom and revelation, so that you may know him, what? Better. The Holy Spirit's role is to help us to know Jesus better by having wisdom and revelation that comes only from the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, so that you may know him better. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Here's the truth. You will never fully know, understand, or even embrace Jesus for who he truly is without the Holy Spirit working in you. This is why you can look at historians on the History Channel around Easter talking about Jesus as though he was nothing more than a historical character. Because in their belief system, that's all he was. He was a guy who really existed in history, but they do not believe that he's the son of God. And you can hear those historians talk because they talk as though it's just factual information about Jesus, this guy in history. But they don't have this work of the Holy Spirit within them that propels them to say, but he wasn't just a man. He wasn't just a teacher. This is the Messiah, the Son of God. Not very often do you hear the scholars that are on History Channel go into that next extreme of preaching Jesus, right? This is what happens when all we have is a head knowledge but not a heart knowledge. That heart knowledge of belief can only happen when the Holy Spirit is actively at work in your life. And that's what he does. He brings testimony to who Jesus is. So do you see Jesus today for who he is? If not, begin to pray, Holy Spirit, help me to know Jesus better. That's what I know that you do. And tune into that. So then Jesus follows this passage of, of healing this man who was blind. And I think it's interesting. It's kind of a, a buffer passage between telling the disciples they have eyes but don't see, ears but don't hear. He heals this man, showing them what they need to do. They need to have their eyes opened and enlightened to who Jesus is. And now he sets up in this next passage to give them kind of a spiritual exam, so to speak, a spiritual eye exam. And it goes like this in Mark 8, 27. That Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, Still others, one of the prophets. Let's pause there. So I think it's interesting. 
Jesus is walking with his disciples. You can kind of see him. He's walking around Caesarea Philippi. And that, by the way, Caesarea Philippi is a prominent Roman city. And it was dedicated by Herod Philip. So Herod Philip was one of King Herod the Great. This was the guy who was alive at Jesus' birth. This was Herod the Great. He had sons who eventually, when Herod died, the kingdom uh, that he ruled was divided into three sections. Uh, and Philip was one of his sons. And so he has control over the area, specifically around Galilee, where Jesus grew up. He takes this old city called Pan, which was dedicated to a uh, pagan god, Pan, and he converts the city and builds this beautiful temple made out of marble. And it was built to honor Caesar. Because in the Roman Empire, you worshiped Caesar. He was your god. They treated their emperors as though they were the sons of God. They were God. So this temple was built to worship Caesar. In fact, there was a big statue in there to Caesar Tiberius. It's also called Caesar Augustus. It was built in honor of him. So here we have this temple built in honor of Caesar, and we have a city that has the name Caesarea for Caesar and Philippi for Philip. We have the city that's for two guys to bring honor to their position. So Jesus is in this area. He knows what people are saying about Caesar. He knows what people are saying about Philip, but he says this, well, who do people say I am? So now you kind of get the context of where he's talking about this. Who do you say I am? Now, if your friend was to say, who do you say I am, or who do others say that I am, it would sound like your friend has either a pride issue or a self-esteem issue, right? Because they're kind of getting looking for clues, like, what are people saying about me? Either in kind of a good way or a bad way. Now, Jesus wasn't asking this to find out, you know, or to share his pride or his low self-esteem. He was asking this question as a setup for the next question, which we'll get to in a minute. But the disciples say, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist. Now, why would they say that? Because people believed that Jesus was John the Baptist reincarnated. In other words, remember, John the Baptist died um, at the hand of Herod. <laughs> um, and, uh, but John was a revivalist. He was the one who came to prepare the way for Jesus the Messiah to come. So that's what his role was. But he is killed. Um, and some people believe that, he, that Jesus, who's doing these miracles, is because John revived from the dead. He's reincarnated in this guy named Jesus. Well, the problem with that thinking is that Jesus and John are contemporaries. Remember, Mary, Jesus' mother, Elizabeth, John's mother, were pregnant around the same time. It's a belief that maybe Jesus and John were about six months in, in separation of age. So it couldn't be that. But that's what some people are saying. You're John the Baptist because you preach repentance and you do powerful things. Others say you're Elijah. Now, who's Elijah? A prophet of the Old Testament who did powerful miracles in the Old Testament, including feeding a multitude, various things that he did. And so there was a belief that Elijah would come back. There was this term called Elijah Revivus, which basically means a revived Elijah would come and he would preach again to Israel to repent and bring their hearts back to God. And some said, that's who Jesus is. He's this revived Elijah. Well, actually, John came as a form of Elijah to bring the people back of hearts of repentance to God, preparing the way for Jesus to come. And then he says, well, others say you're like one of the prophets, which were spokesmen for God, right? We had prophets like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. These were all prophets who preached uh, to turn the hearts of people. They were spokespeople for God. Now, none of these are wrong or bad, but they are not certainly who Jesus is. What I think is interesting that's missing is nobody said, well, I heard somebody say that you're the Messiah. 
Why wasn't that listed? I mean, come on. Even the demons knew who Jesus was. When he met a demon-possessed person, they would say, oh, son of God. I mean, they would say who he was. Why didn't anybody say, well, I think some folks were saying you're son of God or maybe the Messiah. Because people had their own opinions about who Jesus was. And son of God did not compute to them. In fact, if you were to ask some of your friends, who do... Or what do you say Jesus is? How would they answer that question? I mean, there are people who have a lot of fancy opinions about Jesus. There's books written about who Jesus is. If you Googled who is Jesus, you're going to get a lot of different answers. In fact, here's just an example of that. Here's an interview on the streets in New York as people were asked the question, who is Jesus? Go ahead. Did you hear the varying answers? You know, David Copperfield. Uh, just a man like us. Uh, I like the closing comment because this guy kind of said he just seemed kind of ominous and, and big until my faith began to grow. See, what, what was happening? The Holy Spirit was working within his heart. He was growing. He was beginning to see Jesus for who he really is. But I challenge you to have a conversation this week with a friend and, and just ask the question, who is, who is Jesus? And just kind of see where that conversation goes. You might be surprised uh, what people believe. But one of the things that I've discovered is a lot of people, what they do is they want to define Jesus in a way that makes them able to keep living the way they want to live. And I call this a custom fit Jesus. Now, several years ago, I had a, a suit that I was going to wear in a wedding that I was performing, and, and I had lost a lot of weight since um, I originally bought the suit. And I, I found it all, <laughs> the weight that is, and, uh, but I, I took it down to a tailor because it was too big and frumpy. And so he began to, to tailor it to custom fit the suit to, to fit me. And so to do that, he had to take out some fabric and, and make it fit the way it was supposed to. And it, was, it fit wonderfully. It was a custom fit suit. It was great. A um, couple years later, I needed to wear that suit coat again to do a, a wedding. And I put it on. It was like, oh, my goodness. Uh, the buttons seemed really kind of tight. Um, and uh, so it was like, what can we do to fix this? He's like, well, I can put some fabric back in there. We can make it work for you. We can try to stretch it out, whatever. And it's like, interesting. What this helped me understand is what people do to Jesus when they custom fit him. And it's this. They either take something away from Jesus that is totally true, like he is judge. He is the one before whom all of us will stand accountable for our sin, right? Or they want to add things to Jesus that aren't necessarily true about him. And maybe you've heard people do that. Rather than really trying to look at Scripture and define Jesus for who he is. And here's the thing we can take away from this. That we can't define Jesus based on our terms. Right? We must discover him based on his. Now there's a big difference. When I met Tricia, soon to be my wife when I was a, a young person, I kind of had a picture, a definition of what a wife would be like and, and who she would be like as a wife. But how many know that the woman you date becomes different once you flip the switch of marriage? Um, if I had based all of my assumptions upon her just based on our pre-marriage dating process, I would have created a definition around Tricia that she would have blown the walls out of as we were now moving into marriage. Why? Because as I was in close proximity with her, I began to discover her for who she is. 
See, we can't come to Jesus with our terms of who he is so he custom fits our life and helps us to keep and maintain our lifestyle. So all we have is this great little Jesus guy helping us out, but I can live however I want to. We can't do that to him. We must discover who he is based on his terms, which are revealed to us in Scripture, especially within the Gospels that show us who Jesus is. So what people tend to do is define Jesus in a way that accommodates their lifestyle. But Jesus does not make allowance for that, friends. He never has. In fact, he calls people to repent and to make their lifestyle acknowledge and accommodate him as Lord. I I like what C.S. Lewis wrote. Maybe some of you read his books, The Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, or so forth. C.S. Lewis, by the way, was an atheist. Maybe you didn't know that. He didn't believe in God. Until a friend of his, J.R. Tolkien, who wrote another trilogy of books that became pretty popular, had uh, talked to him about who God is and who Jesus is, and he became a believer. And C.S. Lewis makes a declaration publicly first, and then he put it into a book called Mere Christianity, where basically I'll just summarize what Jesus said, what C.S. Lewis said. He said that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. I'll read you briefly what he wrote in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, I am, this is his quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, which is this, quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God, end quote. That is not the sort of thing he goes on to write. That is not the sort of, or, or, that is, sorry, the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that, op- that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So he came to a point of wrestling through those things because if this man makes the claims that he makes, then either he's a lunatic, a liar, or he is the Lord. And what Jesus is pushing to his disciples is, who do people say I am? Now, some people thought he was a lunatic, like the religious leaders of the day. His own family thought Jesus was a lunatic. They came to seize him and take him into their custody because they thought he was a lunatic. You see, but it's not enough to simply know what other people are saying about Jesus. In fact, when your life comes to an end, you don't get into heaven based on a series of questions about Jesus. For example, St. Peter is not guarding the gate to heaven and having you stand there And he says, okay, I'll let you in if you can answer these questions correctly about who Jesus is. There is no pop quiz that gets you into heaven. There is only one way in which we are saved. And it's through a relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So you're not saved because of what others believe or say about Jesus. In fact, you might say, well, my parents believed in Jesus as Lord. That doesn't save you. 
You might say, well, I went to vacation Bible school when I was a kid and I heard all about Jesus. Great, that doesn't save you. You might say, well, I go to church every Sunday and the pastor, he talks a lot and he talks a long time and he talks about Jesus all the time. Great, that doesn't save you. You might say, well, I went to OSU and I took a religion class where I learned about Christianity and Jesus and, and all of these other religions. Great, but that does not save you. Because you can know about somebody without truly knowing them. Isn't that true? And hearsay about Jesus doesn't interest him. What does interest him is this next question. Let's look at it. Mark chapter 8, verse 29. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So Jesus is interested in your personal response to this one question. Who do you say I am? I mean, imagine standing before Jesus and him looking at you with his eyes of compassion and love and saying to you, who do you say I am? How would you answer that question? How would you answer that question today? How would you have answered that question 20 years ago, right? How would you answer that question? That's the one thing he's concerned about. Who do you say that I am? Peter answers the question. He says, you're the Messiah. So what is Peter saying? Peter uses a a word, Messiah, which is an Old Testament word and a New Testament word. But in the Old Testament, it was the word Mashiach, which basically was the one who was anointed. So when there was a priest who was going to become a priest, they would anoint him. And he would be a Messiah, an anointed one to serve God. When kings became kings of Israel, they were also anointed. And they were anointed as God's set-apart servants. They were called a Messiah. When they would have people that were prophets of God be a prophet of God, they would be anointed. They were set apart from God. That's what Messiah means, the anointed one who was set apart for God and used for his purpose. But between the Old Testament view of Messiah and the New Testament, there became kind of this view of Messiah that moved to a title that specifically attached to a person. What they believed as Messiah was the ideal king, like King David, who would come, and this king would rule over Israel. That was their belief, that he was going to be somebody special, a culmination of the prophet, priests, and king. This was going to be the ideal king, Jesus. And so in the New Testament, we see the word Christos, or the word Christ. That's not Jesus' last name. Okay, he's not Mr. Christ, how you doing? This is a title. So Jesus was his name. Christ was a title. Jesus, the anointed one. And that's what Peter begins to discover and understand about who Jesus is. In fact, I like the way that Matthew kind of fleshes it out a bit further. Um, when he's answering Jesus, I'm going to kind of fast forward through Matthew 16. I'm, I'm going to go to verse um, 15. He says, but what about you? And Peter a- 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 answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. In other words, you didn't get this out of your own brain. But by my Father in heaven, the Holy Spirit has revealed this to you, Peter. So Peter was starting to see more clearly. Now, he wasn't there yet, but he was starting to see more clearly. And he would certainly, by the day of Pentecost, Holy Spirit empowered, get up and preach, and he would know Jesus, and he would speak clearly of who he was. But here's the thing I want to tell you. 
Your confession about Jesus is a matter of life or death. It is. Your confession about who Jesus is is a matter of life or death. What do I mean? It's a matter of eternal life or eternal death. That's true. There's no middle ground here. And this is the problem with an American version of Jesus is there's more than one way to get there. And Jesus said, and I'm sorry, friends, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Paul talks about that in Romans 10, 9, that if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So you see a confession there that leads to life. He says, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So Jesus, in the way that he ministered in his words and how he taught, he gave people ample evidence that he is Messiah, Son of God, but people still didn't see it for who he was. Instead of diligently seeking for the truth, people instead listened to popular opinion about who Jesus was, and then they followed that. And there are people still today who do that. Listen for general, uh, what's the popular opinion about Jesus? Okay, that's the one I'm going to believe in. But popular opinion about Jesus doesn't save you. What does? A personal confession saves you. There's lots of opinion about Jesus. That doesn't save you. Your confession does. Why is that important? Because there's no such thing as bulk salvation or crowd salvation. Each person is saved upon their belief in Jesus and their confession about him. And Peter makes that confession bold and unashamedly. You are the Messiah. Peter, we're starting to see. Friends, when it comes to our salvation, it's not because we know about Jesus. It's because we confess him as Lord. Your confession about Jesus is a matter of life or death. And friends, you know people, friends that you work with, people in your family, that today, it's death. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through who? Jesus Christ. Your confession is everything. And if you're here today and and Jesus has not yet been Lord of your life, understand that you are tightroping the walk of death. And Jesus has grace for you through faith in him to confess who he is, our need of a Savior, and to find that kind of life that only he can bring. So I come back to the question, who is Jesus to you? Just a historical figure? Just an inspiring guru? A wise teacher? Those are Fine answers, but you have fallen very short of who he is if that's all you've left him to be. Because what you or I believe about Jesus doesn't change him. Here's what is true. He is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the one and only way to which we are saved. Let's pray. Father, right now in this space, there are people who have heard about you. There are people who love you. There are people who are committed to following you. But we know today, Jesus, that there really is no middle ground. That is either that we deny who you are or we believe who you are. You don't leave us room in the middle to kind of just live without making a decision. 
I think of the Old Testament where Israel had been disobedient and they were challenged to choose between death or life. And they were encouraged to choose life that they might live. I pray that right now for people in this room who maybe think they can live somewhere in this gray area in the middle and that hopefully the good things they do in life will be enough to get them into heaven. That, that is not the way it works with you, Jesus. You're very clear to us in your word that you're the way, the truth, the life, that no one comes to the Father except through you. And that means knowing who you are, as Peter, as Peter said, and as Paul reminds us. Confessing with our mouth you are Lord and believing that with all that we are. That's where we're saved. So I pray for any in the room right now who maybe just aren't sure or they want to recommit. In fact, if you're here with our heads bowed or eyes closed, if you're here and saying, Kelly, I, I've known a lot about Jesus, I've grown up around Jesus, but I, I want to recommit today that he is my Lord, my Savior, the Messiah. Just raise your hand if that's you. I, I want to commit that today, Kelly. Thank you. Anybody else? I want to commit that today. So I'd love to pray with you. Anybody else before we go on? Let's pray. Father, thank you for those that today are making that decision to say, I am choosing today again, or for the first time, that this is who you are, Jesus. Thank you that, first of all, we can confess our need of you, that we are broken, that we are sinful people, that we, because of our sin, deserve death. We understand that. But by your love and your grace, you didn't leave us that only option of death. You came as a gift of life, Jesus, to die on that cross as the Son of God for my sin, that I could be forgiven. And I ask you today, forgive me. Forgive me of my sin. And then I confess that you today are Lord of my life. I yield myself to your leadership. And with all of my heart, I confess that you are Lord. And I believe that you are the Son of God. And because of that, I am saved. So thank you for that truth today. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you would continue to reveal Jesus to them throughout this week and the weeks to come. As they begin to see you more clearly and truly could answer who they say that you are. We thank you for it. Bless us now as we go from this place today. Help us be mindful of those around us who are spiritually blind and know that they also have a matter of life or death decision to make, a confession or rejection of who you are. May we not just go through life without recognizing the urgency that we have to help our friends and family and those in our community know you in a life-saving way. In Jesus' name, amen.